good to see all of you again. Today is the 70th, 7-0 time that I have preached in this congregation. That's somewhat of a milestone, and I've enjoyed every time. It's always a delight to be with you. I would direct your attention to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 7 through 10. You may recall uh, about three years ago, I preached a sermon on the introductory two verses, that opening greeting. And after that, we come to one lengthy sentence in the original language, what we know to be verses 3 through 14, or one sentence in Greek. Paul is not easy to interpret sometimes. He's not easy to understand. Peter actually makes note of that himself in his writings. But today, as I think it appropriate as we come to the Lord's table, that we focus on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In these 12 verses that are one sentence, Paul is basically engaging in praise. This is a doxological passage. Anytime you see the word bless or blessed at the beginning of a passage, the writer is ramping up unto praise, and that's what Paul is doing here, emphasizing the Trinitarian existence of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In verses 3 through 6, he is emphasizing and stressing the electing and adoptive love of God the Father. In verses 11 through 14, he's going to move on to a presentation of the Holy Spirit as the guarantor of the inheritance that is the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, possessed now as a great blessing in the heavenly places, but to be possessed in full at the last to the praise of his glory. And today we come to the second person of the Godhead in verses 7 through 10, specifically the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one by virtue of his essential sameness with God the Father and God the Spirit, can rightly be identified as him in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells namely with regard to the work of redemption. There are fewer words, are there not, that are as precious to the believer as the word and the concept of redemption. To think of having been bought with a price, a particular due met to reclaim you as his own. God has done that, and in so doing has ransomed you from the throes of death. Redemption. I remember as a child growing up in Florida, my mother would shop at Publix, and they used to give out S&H green stamps. You know, you would have those little green stamps that would come out of the little machine by the cash register, and you'd get books, and there was an accompanying guide that showed you what you could claim with so many stamps, and I can remember pressing those sponges down, uh, stamps down on a wet sponge, putting them in the books and being able to go to the store, the redemption store, and get the toaster 
or the microwave or whatever you had paid enough to get. And what had come out in those payments with accord with what would be given to you if you brought the redemption stamps. Redemption. And there are a plethora of other ways that we can think of that concept, even in everyday life. But what a blessing it is to be able to think about that as we prepare to sup with our Lord. So let's turn our attention to verses 7 through 10. And of course, we always want to look at things in context, and we will be making reference to other verses, particularly the ones that come immediately before. But Paul writes, beginning in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. This is God's word. May he write its truths irremovably upon our hearts this day. Let's again look to him in prayer. Lord, how grateful we are that you have given to us the truth of your word, that you have not left us in the darkness, but that you have revealed to us through your servants whom you have inspired the truth concerning ourselves and you, that we may know what you require for salvation and that we may know the one to whom we ought to look alone to receive that salvation. Would you encourage us this day by your truth? Would you build us up and cause us to be effective in carrying out the many exhortations and admonitions in that hymn that we just sang, the great privilege that we have to be recipients of your gospel and to take it to the world and to proclaim his work. Help us to this end, we ask in his name. Amen. I remember when I was finishing up my master's degree in mass communication at Southern Illinois University, the day came the appointed time to defend the thesis that I had written. And at the end of that process, the chairman of my committee looking at me and asking me the question uh, if I had brought my release form with me. And honestly, I wasn't sure exactly what he was talking about. He got up and went out to the administrative assistant and brought back the release form. I didn't know exactly what it was, but it sure sounded good. And it turned out that it was that standard one-page sheet of paper that normally winds up as page two or three in a bound thesis or dissertation that has all of the signatures of your committee and all, all the statements about your having fulfilled the requirements of that part of the degree, et cetera, et cetera. And they all signed it and they handed it to me and that was it. I mean, there were a few things to do, some binding, some editing and walking, of course, in the ceremony. But at that moment, I was released, and I was released to go out into the world, as it were, and to take everything that had gone into the degree and make good on it, use it for something. When you consider redemption, there is a specific purchase that is made by God in Christ. 
But there is also a specific purpose for which the purchase is made. And that is the release, the work of Jesus, all of His merit, all that He has done, all of His toil in His righteous living and sacrificial dying and victorious rising, all of that releases the believer to go out into the world and to make good on it to the extent that you live for His glory and that you function by His power and in His grace to live for Him, to enjoy Him, to feel His pleasure in whatever it is that He calls you to. The Gospel that is before us in these Christological verses is one, yes, of redemption and release. And the other day when I was thinking about this, I thought of that lesser known hymn that we just sang, O Zion, haste your mission high fulfilling. And I didn't know if I could find it. And unbeknownst to me, it was actually number 444 in our new Trinity hymnal. Uh, What beautiful words that we sang moments ago. And that refrain is a great summation of the glorious realities that are before us. Publish glad tidings, tidings of peace, tidings of Jesus, redemption, and release. But there's a third element in Ephesians 7 through 10 of chapter 1, and is that of restoration, redemption, and release. But lest we forget, we must attach to that restoration. It becomes clear toward the end of the passage that the Lord has done what He has in Christ for the express purpose of restoring all things to Himself. In the fall, not only is man put at disharmony with his Creator, but there's a certain discord and disarray that falls upon all that He has spoken into existence by the word of His power. And in redeeming for Himself and releasing unto Himself souls, He then will place them at His disposal for use in His all-wise providence in renewing that which has been lost. On the way progressing as we venture through life to that new heavens and that new earth that will be our eternal home. And so as we come to these verses, we very simply have God in Christ who has worked to pardon sinners and to make them His forever and with them to effect cosmic renewal, to take His universe and to purge it of everything that opposes Him and to set all things in heaven and on earth right again in the One who is making known His great mystery, the mysterious will that He has set forth in Christ, and doing so all in the fullness of time. And we have the privilege of being a part of that. So there are three main points this morning. The particularity of redemption, the permanence of release, and the progression of restoration. 
Now, I have verses 7, 8, and 9, and 10 corresponding, as you can see in the outline, to those three points. But again, uh, given Paul's great run-on sentences, it's very difficult to, uh, in our English analysis, the way our minds think, to, to sketch out an outline that perfectly matches everything that comes down in what we know to be the corresponding verses. So these are primary estimations of the places in the text from which those truths are drawn, but really all three points come from all four verses, and as I indicated earlier, even beyond that and before it. But this is the outline that we're going to use as we focus on this in the coming moments. First of all, the matter of redemption itself. In him we have redemption. There are a variety of ways in which, as I noted a moment ago, even in everyday conversations, we can talk of or hear people speaking around us of the concept of redemption. People will say things about people that uh, they might not particularly like, and they'll say, but he does have some redeeming qualities. I've talked with people over the years who regret their past decisions, the unwise choices that they've made in, in life, and they'll say things like, but I'm still hoping for a shot at redemption, to borrow that line from Paul Simon's song back in the mid-80s. Everybody seems to be looking for some brand of redemption, and yet few people really seem to understand that redemption that is superior to all redemptions. The redemption of God in the Lord Jesus Christ of lost sinners and His desire to make them his own. It, it, it's lost on people out in the real world. I remember when we were selling our property in Manhattan Beach 20 years ago and relocating to Torrance, we changed the name of the church from New Life Presbyterian to Redeemer Presbyterian. And as I would deal with the realtors and the bankers, people seemed a little bit puzzled by that. And I was astonished at the question sometimes, what, what does Redeemer have to do with a church? Uh, what, what does church have to do with redemption? And of course, you're trying to, to keep everything together and, and not respond with something rude like, well, you need to understand that there's nothing about a church that can be separated from redemption or, or, or redeemer. That's, that's the whole kit and caboodle. But you're astonished at how people just don't, don't get it. They don't see it. There is no more appropriate name for a body of believers, then Redeemer, Redeeming Grace, Redemption, Presbyterian Church. This drives at the very heart of what the Gospel is all about. Redemption. And I want to go on just a little bit of a rabbit trail for a moment that will be both a little bit of a Greek lesson as well as an opportunity to see how it is that the Holy Spirit when he inspired the writers of Scripture, used the gifts that he had given them and the minds that they possessed to address certain matters, to express themselves in certain ways so as to avoid confusion within given cultural contexts. Paul uses a noun here. In him we have redemption. Apolutrosin. And this noun... Uh, literally refers to redemption or being purchased for a ransom, released for a ransom that has been met in full. 
Again, there's that concept of, of being released, being freed, being given relief by God at a specific cost, and all of the demands of the ransom are fully and perfectly met. Perfect redemption. And it is juxtaposed to a concept that reinforces the idea of the release unto a specific purpose, the idea of adoption. If we let our eyes wander back up the page a bit, you'll notice that in verse 3, I'll just begin at the, at the beginning of the section. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And of course, that will at the end of verse 5 is the same will at the end of verse 9. But the, the groundwork that he's laying here for the Ephesian Christians to contemplate redemption unto a specific purpose is adoption. That we are redeemed by a specific price the blood of Christ, and that wins for us the forgiveness of our trespasses or our violations of the law of God. All of that in the framework of His eternal desire to take His elect and make them be sons of His, to receive adoption. Beforehand, He has predestined us those who believe for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And so it's imperative that Paul use a noun here that fits into and can be appropriately juxtaposed to both principles. That of being released, redeemed, purchased by blood and released unto not just the ether or, or some undefined place, but no, released unto the family of God considered to be his and to be his sons. And this is a, a strengthened word as opposed to some of the others that are uh, less descriptive that we find in the New Testament. Now we think of a couple of those. First off, uh, agorazo. This is a word that is translated to buy or, or to purchase. Uh, we see it in the New Testament. We actually find it twice in Revelation um, chapter 5, and then again in chapter 14. John there cites the four creatures and the 24 elders as falling down before Christ and hailing him as the one who ransomed people for God. Later on in, in chapter 14, he employs the verb in reference to the symbolic 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth, verse 3 of chapter 14 of Revelation, and from mankind, as he says in verse 4. Now, he could have used that verb. He could have said something in this verse like, uh, in him we have been agorazoing. Uh, he could have said that. Uh, he could have come at it from the perspective of the action that God has taken and been perfectly appropriate. After all, even uh, the Apostle John makes clear there that, yes, there was a ransom paid, and it was for the purpose of 
them becoming God. They're ransomed for God, becoming a part of His family and becoming His children. The other descriptions are general, redeemed from the earth and from mankind. Now that, again, is, is appropriate and would be an accurate usage even in this Ephesian context. But why? Why would He not do that? Why would He use a word, a noun that packs more punch in the context. Well, it's because, you see, those in and around Ephesus, which was a great city of commerce, could hear the verb agorazo and think other things. Agorazo was a term that was used in the Greco-Roman world in reference to going to the marketplace, a place of commerce, and buying and selling. And it was a general term that could apply to bargaining, back and forth. In fact, agorazo in some context in that culture could even refer to a trip one made to the marketplace on any given day where you just sort of hung out. You didn't actually engage in any bargaining or deal making, but you just sort of loitered there. Those of you who are shoppers and love shopping Uh, have you ever gone and spent the entire day at the mall and not bought anything probably maybe you just went window shopping maybe you just looked but you still went home and told your spouse or whomever i was shopping all day even though you didn't buy anything agarazzo would have applied to that engagement in this time and in this place And Paul doesn't want anyone, Jew or Gentile, around Ephesus anywhere near the mistaken thought that God comes into the marketplace of sinners and doesn't buy. Or even when He does buy, that He somehow buys in some way of bargaining or deal cutting or back and forth. Oh no, He wants it to be clear that there is an apolotrusin. There is a particular ransom where the price is paid with something specific. The blood of Jesus. And the deal cannot gut but go through successfully. Or we could ask, why doesn't he use the verb ex agorazo? Which basically is agorazo with the prefix meaning purchase out of in front of it. After all, Paul had used that very verb in Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, when he had spoke metaphorically of how the Christian Jews had been purchased out of, in most translations it's ransomed there, from the curse of the law for the express purpose of being received as sons of God. Again, the concept of adoption is present there as well. But you remember, his purposes in writing to the church at Galatia were very different. The Galatian heresy had come along and had required obedience to the law even in the face of the gospel. And what Paul is stressing there is, no, you were delivered from that. And he even stresses that it's for adoption and you say well couldn't he have said the same thing to the church at Ephesus yes he could have but again in the context of the day when you consider everything that went on in what we would refer to as a metropolis of Ephesus there could have been misunderstandings on the part of either newer believers or those on the periphery who had yet to hear the gospel Ex agarago, again, was a Greek word used in that culture that referred to 
slaves being brought in to be sold to new masters and how it was that after a time, if those new masters no longer liked the slave, they could take them back and sell them to another master. Someone could be sold ex agarago. It was believed at about the time Paul is writing here in the early 60s A.D. from house arrest that somewhere on the order of one quarter of the Ephesian population, greater Ephesus, were slaves. Wealthy folks had upwards of 200 slaves in their homes. And there was all of this trafficking and all of this trading. And they knew the perils of this dreadful life of being purchased out of ex-agaragoed all over again and you see where I'm going with this why Paul wouldn't use the word because he doesn't want anyone who would hear his gospel dare to think that this is a God who could purchase you from whom you could be purchased again he wants the Ephesian Christians to have the confidence that once God buys you you are his And that's why I say the particular redemption paid with the blood of Jesus brings with it a permanent release. And what comfort that is to a doubting world. Don't you want the assurances that the price has fully been paid and that what it has been paid for is to bring you to the best of places, to the most glorious of families, God's family as his son, as his daughter, never to be released again. He wants them to understand that Christ is their greater Boaz. That even as Boaz came and bought the rights of the property of Ruth's late husband to fulfill the law when no one else would, even as he could bring land that belonged to a man and bring it back into that family unit as a member of that family. He wants all at Ephesus within the sound of his voice, within the sight of the words that he has written and heard in their hearing in public readings to know that Jesus has come and he has with his blood purchased for the express forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God and a permanent place at God's table. Himself He has done that and He has done so bringing you into the family. He has brought you nigh to God and the great kinsman redeemer makes the purchase and comes into right relationship with you as a family member That this one who will come with sword in mouth and judge the wicked at the end is the one who loved you in such a way as to come and to buy what only he could with the price that only he could pay. And he comes into your family making God your father and him your elder brother. This is why the Apollosutrin was necessary and why it is conjoined to the concept of redemption here. You see, this is the permanence of the release. 
in the particularity of the redemption. Uh, This is the great purpose of God that on the one hand, you might be able to know, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, to know that is your particular redemption and to hold in tandem with that the glorious reality of what Jesus expresses in John 10, 29 and 30. When speaking of His sheep, Jesus says, My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, the particularity of redemption and the permanence of release. Safe at God's house. And no longer having to fear what will happen to one in the world in terms of the selling of one's soul, but to know that we are His and He is ours. Nothing can snatch us from his hand. You see, and in order to emphasize this, Paul needed the employment of a strengthened word indicating both deliverance from sin and guilt, but introduction into a liberated life as a child of God. This is the richness of the grace that he's talking about. I love it when Paul employs phrases like that, according to the riches of his grace, the the gems, the, the unfathomably beautiful realities of His divine favor, which He lavishes upon His own. He, he abundantly releases. It just comes, and, and it's so much. It has a volume that cannot be contained. Now, I want you to, to notice as we contemplate this in the context of adoption, that adoption brings with it privileges. But no one can consider adoption itself without thinking about the obligations that come with it. When one is adopted in the Lord Jesus Christ, one enters into what is known as a filial relationship. That is, God is the Father, and there are certain obligations and responsibilities due to that Father by the child. We know this in life. This is what we experience as we're growing up. And even to this day, as our, if those of us who have at least one parent still with us, we seek to honor them. We seek to honor our father and or mother, all of our days, not all of their days. We out, we live beyond them, but we never forego that responsibility until we have drawn our final breath. But it comes with responsibilities, and those responsibilities and the grace afforded to us to keep them are given to us in the form of what he says next, in all wisdom and insight. This was exciting this past week as I was studying this, and it occurred to me in a very new way that Sophia and Phronisei, the two words here translated wisdom and insight, really are the New Testament fulfillments of the two wisdoms that we've talked about before and that I touched on last month when I was here. Remember when we were looking at 
the wisdom literature in Proverbs 3, and I was talking about how Solomon uh, had two distinct wisdoms. There was the Tachamach, uh, Proverbs 4, 7. Uh, the principal thing is wisdom, therefore get wisdom. He calls us to that. And we said that it was life smarts, that it was the, the cleverness, if you will, that you need for living day to day wisely and to have good outcomes in life. But that the other wisdom, sometimes translated understanding, the Proverbs 1, 7 wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that wisdom the diet is the wisdom, the knowledge of truth unto new obedience as a transformed soul. And that's exactly what we have here. The Sophia is life cleverness, wit, knowing to look both ways before you cross the street, knowing not to spend more money than you have at your disposal in your bank account. But not only so, all wisdom and inside the phronesia the understanding that is deeper than the other wisdom, a knowledge, uber-wisdom, graduate-level wisdom, the kind of prudence, as some translations say, that as you grapple with things in this life and as grace operates, lead you to come to the point where you say, no, I can't take that job even though it pays a lot of money because it asks me to do things that dishonor Jesus that sometimes lead to heartbreak when you have to say, no, I can't marry that person because they're not born again. That's the phronesia. And, and think of that. Think of Solomon grappling around in all of his misery, the wisest man who had ever lived other than Jesus. And he, 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 he knows what's wise, and yet there's so much that he doesn't know. And here it is revealed. Part of the mysterion, or the will, the will of God that is so mysterious. What do the Ephesian Christians have? What do we have? We have all wisdom and insight. We have everything we need for the living of our days as sons and daughters in Jesus Christ, purchased with His blood to make good choices, to make wise choices. And you see, this works in tandem with the desire that comes in our renewed hearts to please our Heavenly Father in fulfillment of our filial duties to Him. You see how this works. You see the value of wisdom and insight, wisdom and prudence, and the fact that you're not lacking in any in all wisdom and insight, not some. He is revealing these things to us. He is giving us the equipment to honor Him to live for His glory in this life. Augustine prayed, Lord, command what You will, but give what You command. There it is, in all wisdom and insight, in all wisdom and prudence. And you begin to see the blessing of that. You begin to see more, to understand on a deeper level the mysteries of the Gospel and what role you might play in the furtherance of God's kingdom. And you take those nuggets of truth and you say I I long to serve only this one that all idols underfoot may be trod for the Lord is God the Lord is God and that Lord is now your father in Christ William McAllister the noted 19th century jurist who sat for a time in the 1800s on the 
Illinois State Supreme Court once spoke of a man who had gone to the south to purchase a slave. And when he returned to the north, he said to the man, you are now free, you can go where you please. But the slave said, I will stay with you. Supposing he did not understand, the man again said, you are free to go wherever you please. And the man replied, you bought me, I will stay with you. There's that Ruth-like language, desiring to be with Naomi. Uh, This one professed, you paid the price with your money, so I will stay with and serve you. I do not wish to go anywhere else. And Judge McAllister once wrote, So it is with me. I have been bought with a specific price and therefore wish to serve no one but the one who has paid for me with his blood. That's the kind of love that God will work for him in our hearts as he changes them. And we have what it takes to live for Him because we have come into possession in the Lord Jesus Christ of all wisdom and all insight. He is the embodiment of that. That even as the Dabar, the Old Testament word for the Word of God in Isaiah 55:11, even as my word goes forth from my mouth and it will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it, it will not come back to me empty, it will not return void, It didn't because the Debar appeared before men as the Logos. And so it is with the wisdom of God, the wisdom with which Solomon wrestled, and the wisdom that he strained along with the prophets to see is the one that comes to us in the mystery of the will of God in Christ as all wisdom and insight, Sophia and Phronesia. John Stott in his excellent book, The Message of Ephesians, says of this matter, the deliverance in question here is a rescue from the judgment of God upon our sins, and the price paid was the shedding of Christ's blood when he died for our sins on the cross. So redemption, forgiveness, and adoption all go together. Redemption or forgiveness is a present privilege which we have and enjoy now. It makes possible a filial relation to God. It comes from the lavish outpouring of His grace upon us. He goes on to say we gain access to Him as our Father through redemption and forgiveness. But we lose our blemishes beginning at once by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit until we are finally made perfect in heaven. The words that seem to unite the privilege and the responsibility of our adoption are the expression before him, verse 4, meaning in his sight or in his presence. For to live our life, Stott concludes, in the conscious presence of our Father is both an immeasurable privilege and a constant challenge to please him. But he meets the challenge and enables us to have what we need as He lavishes upon us all wisdom and all insight among the other blessings that we find here in this passage. Now, with regard to the matter of restoration, the mysterion here, the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ, those things look back over the statement Uh, mystery of his will and modify it in a sense 
he defines all of these actions as a plan for the fullness of time. That is, when the time is right, when God has specifically decreed that these things come to fruition, the ultimate result is going to be a uniting, again, of all things in the created order. I love the way in which Paul uses the term mystery throughout his writings, the mysterion. When you read Paul and he talks about a mystery, you know that what is coming is a glorious blessing and he's going to flesh out something good for your soul, but even he doesn't really understand it fully. Behold, I tell you a mystery, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Who in the world can understand that? That's a mystery. We don't get it. But God said it, so it's true. You define it as the mysterion, and if you could plumb the depths of the mysterion, it would no longer be the mysterion. You need a mystery to remain a mystery in order for it to be the blessing that God intended for it to be. I don't understand how God became man and continued to be God. Two natures, two wills, one person. How in the world does that work? Dying on a cross, rising out of a grave. That blows anybody's mind. But it's true. It's the mystery. Paul loves mysteries. He speaks of them very often. And even as we can't fully understand how it is that the dead in Christ will rise and those who are quick will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and the wonderment of that, we still don't fully understand what we're up against here. How it is that He would redeem and how it is that He would release us to His own care and keeping and would give us precisely what we need to obey Him and to honor Him, but praise God that it is so. According to His purpose, He set it in motion in the one that we meet at this table. It's before all of mankind. And it still is. That hasn't changed. That in the world today, the living Savior reigns. And in the fullness of our time, we will see, as long as the Lord gives us upon the earth, we will see the uniting of all things in Him. That word we translate unite really means to gather together or again or, or to collect up. As I noted earlier, not only is there enmity between man and God, uh, but there is a, an effect upon all of the universe that leaves it sort of, for want of a better way of describing it, scrambled and, and God in Christ is saving us and making us His own. And with us, He's going to unscramble it. He's going to put it back into order. All things. Things in heaven and things on the earth. The Scriptures begin in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All things in heaven, all things on earth are going to be righted. And we have the great honor and ought to enjoy being a part of that. Do you think about that as you number your days? 
citing ways in which the Lord has used you in the past and may use you in the future as you've looked upon the leaders of the church in history, following on the apostles, as you've looked at people to whom you've ministered and you've seen change in their life, don't you get excited about God's renewal of all things? We, we should. And I want to emphasize this, that we ought to be people who are eschatologically optimistic. Now, we're going to have disagreements on when certain things may happen and how they may come about. But we ought to be joined in lockstep on the reality that one day He is going to make everything right and everything that you went through as a part of Him making it right was worth it. And in the meantime, we walk in the light of the Lord. The one whom we have already sung of as the light of the world in this service and the one who continues to give life through his wisdom and prudence. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may be walking in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And then he says this in that mysterious description of how all things will be righted in the end, that peace will come, tidings of peace, of which we've already sung. He says this in verse 5 of Isaiah 2, O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. As if to say, in the meantime, as we wait upon all these glorious realities, walk with Him and do so in the light that He has revealed and given to us. And be confident that all things will be made new. Recently I've been reading in volume 2 of David Clarkson's works. David Clarkson was a great 17th century nonconformist preacher. And in this particular section of this volume 2 of his writings, the Lord rules over all. Clarkson seems to be in contemplation of this very thing. And I love his transparency as he writes this. He says, The Lord at first created all things in admirable order and in a direct tendency to the use and comfort and happiness of man. How did they fall into such woeful disorders? As they now rather tend to be his afflictions and grievousness and calamities. Why all this fallout by man's departing from his subjection to God? That was the first disorder upon which all things else fell into this woeful confusion. And so far as man returns to that subjection, so far all will be reduced toward their primitive serviceability of comfort and happiness. The world is now like a body, all whose parts and members are broken and out of joint. The parts which served it 
before being disjointed, do now afflict it. And what was helpful and comfortable before is now painful and grievous. Now all was broken and put out of joint as to man by his fall from his submission to him who rules over all. And the woeful issues of this misplacing and unjoining of things will continue. Uselessness and painfulness will remain till they be set in joint again. And there is no setting of them further than man is brought back to his proper place and set in due subjection to God. If this were once fully done, the world would have a new face. And those things in which we ensnare and endanger ourselves would be our security. And those which trouble and pain and afflict us would be helpful and comfortable. And those which are our vexation and misery would relieve us and tend to make us happy. Such would be the excellent effects of a due subjection to God and all the world. It's as if Clarkson, as he contemplates the mess of a world in which he lives, longs to see everything renewed and redeemed and confusion done with and harmony abounding. And the glorious truth before us is that that will come to pass. God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him that is Christ, things in heaven and things upon the earth. So that's good news. Now, I want to make a couple of applications in closing by way of encouragement. I trust that as we look for the new heavens and the new earth, as we long for that time that Christ will reign in the interest of His church such that all things are made new. I think there's a couple things that we need to consider. There's, there's a warning, there's a reality check, and then there's a great hope in face of that reality check. First of all, as we move through and as we anticipate God's renewal of the cosmic order. We need to understand something we've always known as we have followed Jesus, but don't really like to talk about. And that is that the degree of sacrifice for him may be greater than we've ever anticipated. I mean, when you look at what has changed in the world just in the last year, and the ostensible disarray as it seems to be, in the midst of this great crescendo where all the noise of a, uh, a loveless world is just, is just crying out and, and smacks of sin and of shame and of disorder. We wonder, as we stand for truth, as those bought with the blood of Jesus for the express purpose of being the adopted sons of God and having the equipment needed to live in this world for his glory will that require of us our very lives I, I think in america we have become guilty of thinking that we somehow have a pass toward persecution or suffering i mean after all we're good people and we do the right thing and we're a christian nation and therefore we should never really have to suffer like other people are around around the world well, as my friend Dr. Ralph Davis says, God doesn't need a spiritual superpower and he doesn't need an evangelical empire to bring his kingdom. 
and we don't have any legitimate right to be freed from suffering any more than any other believer who has suffered and died has for their faith. We are heirs with God and we are co-heirs with Christ, Paul has told the Roman church in Romans 8.17, if we will suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him also. There's an inseparability between service and suffering. It's just a, a matter of the degree. And so we need, as we move forward, we need to recognize that we may have to give our lives. And, and, and why shouldn't we? I mean, we, we celebrate men on whose shoulders we stand. We, we have the, the, the Scriptures. We have God's Word in our language because men centuries ago were willing to die that that might be so. It's remarkable. And when you think about it, Christ really isn't worth living for if we're not willing to die for His glory. He died for us. Who's to say we won't have to die for Him? And if we do, will we do so gladly and adoringly and in the confidence confidence of His victory that He has brought with His redeeming blood, the remission of sins? Now, secondly, in order to do that, in order to deal with the anxieties that that come to us in the face of such prospects, we simply need to focus on the resurrection. A fourth R in this message could have been the resurrection. We just celebrated, as we do annually two weeks ago, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it is the power of the resurrection that will get you through. Do you remember Paul when he told the the church at Philippi in Philippians 3.10? What did he want? He wanted to share in the fellowship of Jesus' suffering. Why? Because he also desired to know the power of the resurrection. Those two are held in tandem, inseparably. We ought to want to know the power of the resurrection, therefore know the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings and what that might entail for us in the world. But in the face of such possible sufferings unto death, we have the power of the resurrection. I remember a few years ago being at one of our presbytery meetings, and it was I think it was in 2015, 2014, somewhere back then when the uh, the awful slaughtering of Christians was taking place by ISIS and the videotapes were being released about the, the um, Christians being beheaded and just this, this awful period of atrocities, uh, reports coming from missionaries back to the United States of, of evil that's just beyond what you can conceive of. And I remember we had a time of prayer and I remember my colleague, the Reverend Tim Leon, praying for those who were facing death and he choked in the middle of his prayer and he said, Lord, in the moment of their death, please strengthen them with the reality of the resurrection. You can face death because for the believer on the other side of it, he who rose from the dead 
will raise you from the dead also. That the resurrected King is resurrecting me. And He is resurrecting you. If, if we trust Him, if we lean upon Him. There are some things that I disagree with Him on. But many times I'm very blessed by His writings. And in his latest work, one of his latest books, Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church, Bishop N.T. Wright says the following, The resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. Left to ourselves, we lapse into a kind of collusion with entropy, acquiescing in the general belief that things may be getting worse, but that there's nothing much we can do about it. And we are wrong. Our task in the present is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the final day with our Christian life, corporate and individual, in both worship and mission as a sign of the first and a foretaste of the second. O you who have been redeemed, particularly by the blood of Jesus, and sealed for an irreversible and permanent release into the hands of a loving Heavenly Father, into His family, called to follow Him and given all graces necessary to do so as we seek Him. And you who journey onward in this life as long as He gives any of us to draw breath, do you, by His grace, seek to be a participant in His renewal, even if it means giving all to Him who gave all for you? It's possible... Yes, because the tomb that he occupied is empty. And there are no surprises to him. There is no formidable foe that can take him down. There is no repurchasing of what he has purchased for his own. You are his. And he is yours. And nothing can snatch you from His hand. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the safe haven Christ is, that as we are in His sanctuary, as we come to the table that He has invited us to, that our souls are safe. And that there is no threat to us. There is no pain or suffering that we will endure that He has not taken and borne for His own so that we in Him may live. We ask that you would would help us under the burdens that we carry in this life. We ask that you would take our fears away and the uncertainties that we have about the future and that you would instill in us great joy 
and anticipation for what is coming, knowing that there is a, a new day that will dawn and it will be perfect and all that is wrong will be made right. Thank you for choosing the likes of us to be your own. And may we always have confidence in you as we continue to trust. And may the grace that we now receive in this sacrament equip us for every good work to which you will call us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.